Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. In the late 1960s, a fairly unknown lawyer in New York State sat down at her kitchen table and wrote a law that would legalize abortion in that state. That law would go on to be passed by the New York legislature in 1970 and set the stage for the 1973 opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion. That woman's name was Beatrice Cornblue Braun. And fast forward 50 years to this year's publication of a book that recounts those years and that groundbreaking work. The book is called A Woman's Life is a Human Life. And the author is the daughter of Beatrice Cornblue Braun. Her name is Felicia Cornblue, and she is a professor of history at the University of Vermont. And she joins us now to talk about the book. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and being interested in this incredibly important issue. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, it's it's taken us a while to get you because you're so busy uh, traveling the country talking about this book. Tell us about it. Um, where did it come from? What, what, why don't we just start with uh, what's it about? Well, the book is really about reproductive rights and what we sometimes call reproductive justice writ large. So I'm talking about the 60s and the 70s, but I'm also talking about what happened after Roe versus Wade. And of course, the road that led us to the Dobbs versus Jackson opinion that overturned Roe in 2022. And um, I've also thought a lot about what what happened since then, what has happened since then. Um, I tell in really fine grained detail, I tell the story of two different social movements that were both happening in New York. Um, in the late 60s and 70s, and that sort of set the stage for everything that came later. And as it happens, those two movements had times of headquarters um, in the apartment where I grew up in New York City. It was apartment 8B in a high-rise apartment building. And then across the hall in apartment 8A, um, our next-door neighbor, who was a Puerto Rican doctor and leader named Helen Rodriguez Trias, and so my mom was working uh, with the National Organization for Women and other liberal and Democratic Party groups to try and legalize abortion or decriminalize abortion because it used to be a crime. Um, and then across the hall, our neighbor was very engaged in that. But then after abortion became legal in, in, in our state, um, she also worked to organize women of color and working class women to to fight what they called sterilization abuse, which really prevented people even from making the choice about whether or not to have a child. So I look at these two movements that emerge sort of overlapping, but also kind of in parallel and sometimes even conflicting with each other and try and pull out the two strains. On the one hand, what we're still fighting for, which is legal abortion with no criminal penalties for doctors or people who are seeking those procedures. And on the other hand, fighting against sterilization abuse and fighting against all the different ways in which our society can prevent people from choosing to have the kids that they want to have. I I want to talk about 
the politics of all of that, but I'm also fascinated by your personal story because I love to talk about this. There, there is, seems to always have been, uh, to me at least, a, a pipeline of intellectual uh, uh, sort of underground or overground railroad from New York uh, to Vermont. And you seem to be one of the latest travelers on that uh, railroad. Where? Tell us about your life in New York as a child. Where exactly did you live and what was your neighborhood like back then? Well, I grew up, I think there are probably other Vermonters who had this experience or similar experiences. I grew up in a very liberal urban neighborhood in the 1970s when it was cheap to live in the city. <laughs> and we lived in New York City. Uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, so a little bit south of where Columbia University is. Um, It was a slightly dodgy neighborhood at that time. I guess that was why it was affordable. And my parents were, I guess you would say professionals. My mother was a lawyer by training. My dad owned a small business. And um, they were very committed to the city, you know, and to making the city better. And they did a whole range of political things having to do with the most local and intimate neighborhood kind of work, Um, working on making our block a place where people really wanted to live, you know, and creating community. But then they also worked on state level and national level policy, and they were very involved, as um, I think a lot of people are today, inside the Democratic Party and trying to make the Democratic Party really live up to its liberal traditions. So there was a a democratic reform movement in that period, you know, well before Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and people like that. There was a democratic party reform movement that they were very, very active in. And it was as part of that reform movement that they found feminism and they found the cause of liberalizing abortion rights. So I grew up around that. I had a feminist mom. (laughs) Uh, She raised three feminist daughters. I have a twin sister who is um, an MD um, who also, you know, is, is a, a committed feminist. I have an older sister who does public policy work. We all were, we all were in that milieu. It wasn't easy living in New York City with a lot of crime and stuff like that. At that time, was not easy, but it was incredibly rich, incredibly enriching. Okay, so the book. Uh, th- this is not your first book. It is not your first rodeo, but um, it, it, it's the first one that really talks about the role of your mom. Uh, and and your neighbor across the hall, uh, both enmeshed in similar yet different uh, political uh, movements. Can you talk about your mom's role in abortion rights and uh, and your na- and Helen Rodriguez Trias's role on the in the sterilization fight? Yeah, and let me just start by saying one of the one of the sad and poignant things about this whole story that I hope other people relate to is that I really didn't know these stories when I was growing up. Um, I did know that my mother was committed feminist, but I had no idea of the role she played. And I really didn't know about the work of our neighbor, Rodriguez Trias. I had to learn all of that after they were gone. So I would first just say to people, um, interview your family members, learn their stories and respect their stories, please. Um, uh, it, it was hard to it was hard to learn their stories after they were gone. So 
what my mother did, so she came out of this Democratic Party reform movement. She was a committed Democratic liberal. She worked for the federal government as a labor lawyer for the National Labor Relations Board. And she was an early member of the National Organization for Women, which in the middle 1960s was a pioneering organization committed to women's civil rights. It was a brand new cause, civil rights for women. And they were modeling themselves after the civil rights movement for African-Americans. And she joined the committee on abortion and contraception, and she was the only lawyer on that committee. So they assigned her the job of actually drafting the legislation that would embody their perspective. And their perspective was absolutely no restriction on abortion, that it should simply be removed from the state legal code. Um, certainly, it should be taken out of the criminal code, and there should be no criminal pen penalties for a medical provider or for somebody who's seeking a, an abortion, um, but also that it should be removed from every other part of the code. Like there was something that said that if you were a doctor and you performed an abortion, you would lose your medical license. That had to come out. So my mother went through the state code without a computer before, before computers were available for this kind of thing. And she found every mention of abortion and she constructed in formal official legal language what a law would look like, what a piece of legislation would look like that would do the work of completely removing abortion from the state code. And through the National Organization for Women, she shared that with a Democratic legislator and a Republican legislator who became initial co-sponsors of this bill. And sure enough, they were able to pass a version of that bill, not quite as as radical as my mom's version, they kind of negotiated down from there to uh, 24 weeks um, as the cutoff for someone seeking an abortion. But it was still the most progressive abortion law in the country, and it became the model for many, many others. It inspired a national movement, a movement for what was then called repeal as opposed to reform of the abortion laws, and it really set the ball moving and set the momentum in motion for the Roe versus Wade opinion that would come down in January of 1973. So that's the first piece of it. Do you have any more questions about that? <laughs> Let me stop there. <laughs> well, well, I, it's, it's fascinating that this happened at your kitchen table, and it's also fascinating that uh, the legislation was, was given to not just a Democrat but a Republican and in those days in New York State and in Vermont and many other states, uh, Republicans were uh, pro-choice. They were they supported abortion rights. And I wonder if you could comment on the on the change in political society that's taken place since then. Yeah, it's an incredibly important point. And I think we've gotten so used to thinking about this as you know, a football, a political football that's tossed around in this hyper-polarized environment. That was absolutely not true in the late 60s, and it absolutely does not have to be true. Um, in New York, the the main champion, the initial champion of the law was a woman legislator from Ithaca, New York, who herself was a vice president of the state chapter of the National Organization for Women. And her co-sponsor was a liberal Democrat from Manhattan who was affiliated with this reform movement that my parents were also involved with. They were a very unlikely pair to be working together, but 
they they found a coalition of Democrats and Republicans that were willing to work together. And of course, the governor of New York at that time was Nelson Rockefeller, who was a liberal Republican in the mode that um, a lot of a lot of Vermont Republicans also were in in that at that time. And he was, you know, as committed as anyone to the cause of legal contraception, legal, accessible, um, highly effective contraception, and um, allowing people to have access to abortion care. So it was a very, very different political scene. I think it helps us maybe break ourselves of um, what we're so accustomed to in terms of the hyperpolarization of this issue. I wonder, uh, Professor Kornblum, could you take us back uh, before the 1970s to help us understand what life was like around abortion and reproductive rights. Roe had not yet happened. Uh, This law that you write about in New York in 1970 had not yet happened. Abortion was illegal. Can you tell us why? Well, the why is something that historians debate about. But the, the important thing from the perspective of the folks that I write about was that there was a time when it was not especially problematic in America. Uh, Before the early 19th century, so 17th, 18th, into the early 19th century, um, if somebody, you know, took some herbs or went to a midwife and somehow, you know, brought on a miscarriage at some point in a pregnancy, um, there was was almost no prosecution of that. It it was very, very rare that anybody would even know about it. there was something in the common law, which uh, the U.S. inherited from England uh, about it, but it was a very kind of forgiving legal environment. And then what seems to have happened in the early 19th century and then later on, you know, and, uh, eventually in every state in the United States was that um, doctors organized. Uh, they organized to assert their own professional authority. And this was an area where doctors were very effective at asserting their professional authority. They were they wanted to drive those midwives and, and irregular medical practitioners out of the business. And they used a kind of moral language and pseudo-medical language around abortion to to do that and to, you know, to say that that professional medical care would be better than the care of midwives and also that um, this particular practice, which was fairly common so far as we know, was was a moral abomination and also was very dangerous and therefore should become a crime. So there was a there was a time before crime, <laughs> before at least before there was any uh, legislation about it being a crime, and then when there was a time after crime. And what the people in the 60s and 70s were saying is like we have to uncrime it again. Basically, we have to go back to the time before. It was a legislative crime. So that's why they worked at the state level initially, because the state level is where the action was. The state level is where it had become a crime in the first place. So they thought, okay, we have to we have to undo what was done in the 19th century. And it got really bad. You know, it, it's, it changes over time. It was it was different in different times in American history. But after World War Two, there was a big ramping up of the prosecutions. And so it actually got worse. It got more dangerous and people were driven more to the margins and going to practitioners who were more unskilled. Um, And that's when you see hospitals kind of filling up 
with women who attempted to bring on their own abortions or miscarriages using whatever means were available to them. And people wind up getting very, very ill and people wind up dying. And there were hospital, quote unquote, abortion wards that were just full of people who had what were called incomplete abortions because they were desperate and they were trying to do something. And so um, you have a new generation of doctors who observe this, you know, when they're doing their medical training and they see the horror of this criminal policy, this criminalizing policy and what it's really doing to people. And of course, you have many generations of women and other people who have the capacity to get pregnant who are having this experience. Here's this completely or almost completely safe procedure that could be available to us. It's like right over the garden wall and we can't get there. And they, they're, they're mystified by that and they're infuriated by it. And that's where the organizing comes from. That's where the movement comes from. And then take us from, and, and, and from those days to your mother's work, uh, we then, in 1973, get the Roe v. Wade decision authored by uh, Harry Blackman, the, the, one of the justices. That was a long road, and you write about your mother uh, being on the front lines of that. It, 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 there, there's a straight line from, from your mom to Roe v. Wade, right? I think so. Um, what happened in New York was, so my mother's original move, which was basically the feminist position in the 1960s, which is abortion should simply come out of the legal code. There's no reason that this should be regulated uh, by the law. There's no reason this should be a crime. Right. So that was their position. Uh, but they negotiated down from there. And what they did in New York was they kind of planted a marker in the ground and said, OK, so the compromise position is 24 weeks into a pregnancy. And if you think about it, that's just about the the two trimesters point that Justice Blackman would later say was the time when states really should not be allowed to regulate abortion or they shouldn't be allowed to criminalize abortion, right? That's about 24 weeks, two trimesters. And so you do see Blackman mirroring what they what they did and the compromise that they came to, although he doesn't really acknowledge that. What really happened is, you know, first there was a uh, a federal court decision in Connecticut that creates the two trimester framework. And, and those folks are definitely in dialogue with what's going on in New York. And then there's Blackman. Um, the other thing is that they start to organize a mass movement and it's the demand for full repeal of all abortion restrictions that creates this as a mass feminist movement and gets thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets and one of the things they do is they go in a very targeted way. They go after the American Medical Association and the American Public Health Association, and they actually compel those two very influential organizations to change their policies on abortion. And once, once the AMA and the APHA change their policies, that makes a huge difference. And Justice Blackman cites that all over the Roe opinion. Blackman um, kind of famously respected doctors, and he had been the legal counsel for the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and doctors were, you know, were his friends and the people who he was really seeking advice from on this issue. So when the AMA and the American Public Health Association changed their policies, it really matters to him, you know, that, that consensus medical opinion is shifting. And what was happening 
kind of under the hood of the car is that it was actually activists, feminist activists who were in favor of repealing the law. In other words, in favor of my mom's version of the law who had gone to the AMA and these other organizations and demanded that they change their policy. So you have to be a little bit of a sleuth to find it, you know, but, but actually there, that's, those are just a couple of the ways in which the movement and particularly this demand for basically free abortion, free access to abortion and freedom for practitioners, right? That demand winds up shaping the Roe opinion just in every way. And I wonder if you could comment a little bit more about this this issue of a grassroots movement as opposed to top-down orders from a president or courts or, you know, this really was a, a movement that your mom was a part of at the local level. Yeah, I and I think – I think that's all how all social change happens, really. Yeah. We don't always see it, you know, right? It's always at the headlines. But I think that's really how it happens. So around abortion, they started in one state. Uh, before they started at one state, you know, they started in a couple of neighborhoods. And like in my neighborhood, we had this one one liberal reformer who had been elected to the legislature. So we started with him, and he became the initial Democratic co-sponsor of this bill. I say we. I was two years old, so <laughs> it was really my mom, not me. Um, but that's how you build. And I think, I think I want the book to to serve as an object lesson in how effective that kind of work can be. And you know, it takes a while to see it. You know, it takes a while to see the fruition. So it's easy to think that maybe your your work in your own neighborhood, your own community community with your own legislator, you, you know, maybe you would think that that's not effective, but history tells us it's, it's the only thing really that's effective. It's, it's well, so as I was, effective. as I was reading your book, I could not help but draw a line from that story to the same sex marriage uh, campaign in Vermont that, Absolutely. Uh, that ended with uh, full marriage equality for gay and lesbian uh, Vermonters. Um, because that that grew out of a grassroots campaign of card tables at county fairs um, with Beth Robinson, who's now a federal judge, and uh, it, it that's exactly what happened. Uh, same exact thing. Yeah, I think that's a great a great analogy. Um, and and people who start doing that work have to have a lot of faith. You know, you you can't know exactly whether you're going to win or, you know, what the shape of that um, pot of gold might be at the end of the rainbow. You just can't know when you start. You have to do it because because you're committed anyway. And I'll just say, you know, this was true in the abortion rights movement. It was also true in the other movement that I write about, the movement to control sterilization abuse. Even though they never that movement never won in the Supreme Court, they they still got the federal government to change its guidelines and the the changes that they demanded are still part of our law it's part of what every healthcare facility in the united states has to adhere to that they have to have very very rigorous consent procedures to make sure that nobody's being pressured into uh, a sterilization procedure that they don't really want and you know the, these are these are victories that last for decades for for generations. 
and yet they are uh, and they are illusory in some ways because politics changes, uh, the president changes, the Supreme Court changes, and here we are. Roe is overturned. I wonder in 30 seconds uh, before the break uh, if you could say when when Roe was overturned, what was your reaction? Uh, for me, it was it was really a punch, and I immediately thought about what my mother would have thought and how how bitterly, bitterly disappointed she would have been. Yeah. Dr. Cornblow, I wonder if we could now switch a little bit to the history of sterilization in this country. Not a happy topic, but it is part of your book and it is a reality that we have to deal with. Can you start us from the beginning? Yeah, well, let me just say quickly that this is an issue that people who've studied the indigenous history of Vermont are aware of, um, people who know something about disability history, even in this state, in this region, have worked a lot on this issue, um, even though it's, you know, it's usually not talked about when we talk about reproductive rights. But yeah, what people in the, in the period I'm writing about in the 70s and 80s and 90s, what they started to say was that legalizing abortion was really not enough. It was necessary, but it wasn't really enough to ensure that everybody was going to have free choices about whether to have children, when to have children, and under what circumstances they were going to raise any children they had. And the most fundamental issue around that is whether people would be able to get pregnant at all, right? And that was an issue that for a lot of communities and a lot of people in those communities, whether they're indigenous or disabled or a lot of people in the South, um, uh, famously, some people in Mississippi had what was called a Mississippi appendectomy, which was really a sterilization procedure that they did not consent to. Mississippi appendectomy was common enough that it had this kind of slogan. Um, and a lot of the people I write about are Puerto Ricans and other Latinas, Latinx people, we would say today, um, people who were either living on the island of Puerto Rico or on the U.S. mainland who had had that experience. Um, and they started to call it out, right? They started to call out doctors and social workers and other hospital personnel and other government officials who were trying to use sterilization as a primary means of contraception. And they were insisting that people should have more options than that, right? That there should be other means of contraception. And if they failed, that people should have access to safe and legal and accessible, affordable abortion care. And so that was sort of, I mean, that was a big ask all by itself, but it also was the germ of a new approach that I think it's really important for us to remember today, a new approach to this whole issue of reproductive rights, which today people would call reproductive justice, which says, you know, beyond demanding abortion rights, we also need to think about the histories of disabled communities and communities of color, BIPOC communities, and working class people who have had these experiences. And we need to understand that even today, even in states like ours, where abortion is really legal and well protected, there are still constraints in the way that prevent people from making really free choices 
about when or whether or under what circumstances they're going to raise children. And that's the the demand, the very idealistic and aspirational demand for reproductive justice is that we should all be free to make those choices. So certainly we should be free from sterilization abuse and certainly we should be um, free to choose contraception and abortion, right, in a way that's safe and affordable and accessible. Um, but beyond that, right, <laughs> we want to create a world where people really have the full range of choices. And there are many activists today who are still fighting to create that world. And, and yet, uh, we now live in a society where uh, the United States Supreme Court disagrees with that opinion, um, and a, a large segment of society disagrees with that, and the politics of uh, the post-Roe era, uh, uh, our, our politics now have changed, and in a great many states, uh, the access to those reproductive tools has been taken away. Yeah, it's so hard. Um, and I would never, I would never preach to activists in the movement or to my friends who work at Planned Parenthood and say, you know, you should be doing this big aspirational thing instead of, you know, fighting for abortion rights. Like, no, I understand where the, you know, where the fight is right now. And there are many people who are just in trenches, you know, fighting to overturn the bans that have been instituted on, um, on seeking abortion or providing abortion care and also helping people get to states like Vermont where they can access that kind of care. Um, right. So that's, that's a completely critical fight that I support 125%. Uh, I also think that there's another wing of the movement that should also be supported with our dollars and our volunteer time and our sympathies. And that is a movement that is saying, um, you know, we still want to create a better world. And I think we need to keep our vision of that better world also open. And we need to know where we're heading um, beyond fighting these kind of rear guard battles, you know, in one state after another. I think we need, we need to do both. And I know it's very, very hard for any individual to do both. Yeah. Um, I want to turn, if I could, to, to you a little bit personally. Um, what was it like to go back uh, to your late mom and to Helen Rodriguez Triaz and, and do that research. Where did you start? How did you do that research? It was bittersweet, I would say. So the, the book and the, the whole idea of the book starts with my mother's death. And I don't mean to be maudlin at all, um, but that is the story. My my mom died in a very dramatic and kind of traumatic way. Um, I won't spoil it by going into all the details, but um, it was very, very hard. And it was really after she was gone that I started to learn this story. It was my, my dad and my sister started to have a conversation about my mother's role and honoring my mother's role in legalizing abortion in New York. And it was a story that I just didn't know even though what I do at the University of Vermont is I teach the history of feminism, I teach the history of law in the 20th century, in the 21st century, the history of social movements. It's right up my street, and yet I didn't know, and I had never asked. 
Um, and then I started to think about this woman who had been our neighbor, Helen Rodriguez Trias, and I didn't really know her story either. I had seen some little breadcrumbs in the literature, but she's somebody really who is an unsung hero of modern women's history and the history of medicine. So I started with these little hints, right? And uh, I just decided to see whether I could use my usual tools as a historian and as a gender studies scholar and see if I could flesh out those stories. Like what, what could I learn from the archives, you know, where people's papers are kept uh, about these two remarkable women and the movements that they were attached to? What could I learn from the people who were still left who were willing to talk to me? Um, and then when COVID hit, it was also a question of what what sources or resources I could sort of invent <laughs> because I had to then do more interviews uh, when I couldn't, you know, get into the libraries. Libraries were all shut down. Uh, and I wound up going to the home of a great writer and scholar in this area, a guy who I think you know named David Garrow, who won a Pulitzer Prize for one of his books um, about Martin Luther King Jr., but he also wrote the big book about the Roe versus Wade opinion. And fortunately for me, he's a total pack rat. And so I flew to Pittsburgh right after I, I got my first vaccine for COVID. I flew to Pittsburgh and I went to this guy's house and I, <laughs> he let me just like work in his kitchen and hang, hang out with his dog. And he kept pulling boxes up from the basement all about the history of the movement to legalize abortion. And lo and behold, he had the piece of paper that proved my mother's role. Wow. And, you know, when I saw it on the first, my first day there working in his living, in his kitchen, I just started crying, you know, because I, I kind of knew it by that point. I kind of knew what she had done, but I, but I didn't have any way to connect that to the, the usual tools of the trade as a historian, right? You want to see something in paper for real, for proof. And there was a letter that she sent to our state legislator, this liberal Democrat from New York, from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, saying, you know, Franz, <laughs> here's the bill that you should introduce. And sure enough, that was the bill he introduced. And she walked him through it. And he was already getting cold feet about being too radical. So she talked him off the ledge. Like it was just it was just an amazing experience. Not easy, but it was an amazing experience. Oh, that's fascinating. Do you, let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself a writer, a professor, or an activist, a journalist, uh, or all of the above? I am all of the above. Yes, I am all of the above. Um, uh, I'm very proud of my training as a historian. Um, it's really, you know, good, rigorous training, and it's the kind of, it, 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 I think has given me the kind of skepticism and rigor that I also try and pass on to my students. You know, we should all be skeptical about things we read. We should be looking for evidence. We should be supporting everything we say um, with real data. Um, so I bring that with me wherever, wherever I go. Um, but I was a journalist before I was a historian. Uh, I was a journalist when I was a kid. Um, uh, a reporter for a children's journalism organization in New York City in the 1970s. And I have always done a little bit of freelance work. And um, more recently, I've been writing about reproductive rights um, more widely. And um, and I'm also really proud to be affiliated with the Planned Parenthood of Vermont Action Fund, which is our 
our reproductive rights advocacy organization in the state of Vermont. And, um, you know, I'm lucky that I work at a, at a university and in a state where nobody is ever going to say, you know, that I lack objectivity because I'm on the board of Planned Parenthood or anything like that. I don't. I have plenty of objectivity, <laughs> plenty of rigor in my approach to these questions. And, you know, and I'm deeply committed and I'm proud to be affiliated with Planned Parenthood of Vermont Action Fund. And and lastly, um, I wonder if you see Vermont, you know, we, we, we talk about Vermont as an aging place that needs more people. And I wonder if Vermont doesn't become a kind of refuge state for all sorts of people, uh, immigrants, uh, climate refugees, reproductive refugees. Um, do you see that happening in Vermont because of our politics? Yeah, I see it happening a little bit. Um, I see it at the University of Vermont, and I have uh, I have, as a social scientist would say, a small sample so it may not be representative, but in my courses, at least, I I have seen students who, um, and it's I think it's a good thing for Vermont, but it's also a very sad thing. Students who feel like they might not be safe with the the perspectives they have, the liberal perspectives or the feminist perspectives they have, they might not be safe if they're if they're queer, um, if they, they use that label or trans or gay or lesbian, um, you know, there's a lot of fear and concern right now. So I would say Vermont has become and probably will be even more a refuge if politics keep going the way they are. And that that's something that we should really embrace. Um, it's very sad, you know, and I, uh, it's, my, what my students are experiencing I think, really is a deprivation of their citizenship and their equality. Like they should be free to go anywhere in the country, right, and feel equally safe. But they don't. Um, so, you know, I'm proud that that our doors are open. Um, and I think, and I think it's also true about people who think that maybe someday they might need an abortion, right? So maybe, you know, maybe I'm going to take that job in Vermont. Um, maybe I'm going to go to college in Vermont. Again, um, nobody should be forced to to choose a career or a job or a university on that basis. But given that we're in this climate, yeah, let's you know, let's keep the doors open. Um, Governor Scott, if you're listening, like maybe maybe this is our next campaign for attracting attracting young workers to the state of Vermont. You know, come, you can be you. We're gonna <laughs> doors are open. we're gonna take. We're running out of time, but we got it. We're going to take one call from Rob in Heinsburg. Rob, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, I just you're touching on the different political conditions that exist now and um, and in the past, and and I I just want to have a sometimes it helps to have a little anecdote, and I just want to mention my uncle who ran for the Congress from New England as a Republican in the 1970s. And he, at the, towards the uh, end of the campaign, his his staff came to him and told him that they had found out or knew that his opponent was gay. And my uncle, and that if they just brought that out at all, that my uncle would win the race handily. And my uncle refused. And we're going to refuse. Uh, he mm-hmm. he refused to do that. And lost the race by a thousand votes with over a million votes cast, 
And um, as a consequence, we had the very first um, uh, gay member of, of uh, the House of Representatives. And he was a Republican. He was in New England at that time. And people need to know that things have changed really radically. And um, I appreciate everything that I've heard that you're doing, um, Professor. And, and uh, it's, a, uh, it's important to keep these, keep these threads going. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Thank you Alicia? so much for that story. Yeah, thanks so much for that story. You know, um, one of the first things I learned about Vermont when I got here was um, about how the politics in the legislature had gone in response to people's votes for civil unions. You know, when that first vote happened. And I remember um, people telling me about Republicans who lost their seats because they took that brave vote. And... Um, and then a decade later, when Vermont established same-sex marriage, it was kind of a nothing burger, and um, as Governor Shumlin used to say. And I think that you know sometimes people need to be willing to take political risks and even to suffer some political consequences in order to in order to create that better world. So thank you so much for that. Well, that's all the time we have left. Uh, we, we have to go. And Dr. Felicia Kornblue, uh, it's so nice of you to join us. Uh, she is a professor of history at the University of Vermont, among many other things. And she, she is the author of A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Professor Kornblue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Anytime. Okay. So... We're going to pivot now and uh, say goodbye to our friend, John Margolis, who distinguished himself as a national political correspondent for the Chicago Tribune before retiring to Vermont and lending his talents to the state's much smaller world of journalism. He died at the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington on Monday. He was 83. In a note, uh, in an email to friends, uh, one of which I, I received, uh, earlier this month, as he was preparing for treatment of an illness, Margolis, who lived in South Burlington, reflected on his mortality with his trademark whimsy. He said, it's okay. Nobody lives forever. I've lived for a thousand months. And you know what? I've enjoyed almost every last one of them. I'm a lucky guy. For the last 740 or so of those months, much of the joy came from the presence in my life of the former Sally Thompson, his wife and she survives him. Margolis is best known to Vermonters for his years writing about politics and policy at the Vermont State House. After moving to Barton in the Northeast Kingdom, after retiring from the Chicago Tribune, he freelanced, founded his own website. And then from, for, for 10 years at VT Digger, he was a political columnist and was a steady presence uh, in the State House. Uh, and he uh, was... Always, when you bumped into John Margolis, it was uh, a happy moment, smile on his face. Uh, he was from the old school. Um, some of you are old enough to remember a seminal book on, on politics and presidential campaigns called The Boys on the Bus, and it was uh, excerpted in Rolling Stone magazine. It's still a bestseller to this day, and it followed uh, political reporters around as they uh, wrote about the 1972 presidential campaign. 
Uh, Margolis was not on that bus, but he knew all of those people, mostly men, mostly with uh, the first guys to get to the hotel bar after some event or covering some speech. Uh, and Margolis uh, knew all the scallywags. He knew the corrupt politicians back in New Jersey, where he is from. Uh, and he wrote me once a phenomenal email about uh, when I wrote a blog post about the indicted Democratic Senator Robert Menendez. Uh, he wrote me a, just a great email about some of the some of the crazy politicians uh, that he knew back in the day. Born in Trenton, New Jersey, in 1940. He studied history at Oberlin College, went to uh, his first job as a journalist at the Bergen Record in Hackensack, New Jersey, a great paper back then. He went on to work for the Miami Herald, the Concord Monitor in New Hampshire, and Newsday on Long Island. It was at Newsday that he established a real reputation for uh, covering the uprising at the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York. His daughter, Katie, said he was really proud of that coverage. And he was also proud uh, to be a journalist at BT Digger. Um, and, uh, and he became a really, really good friend. And uh, we remember John Margolis today. You can read the entire obit by editor Paul Heinsohn in, uh, in uh, BT Digger. And uh, it's sad to lose him. John Margolis, uh, dead at 83, uh, he will be missed by his Vermont friends and friends all over the world. And that is our show for today. My thanks uh, to our guests, Felicia Cornblue and Rachel Feldman. Uh, it was a lot to get to, but and we went pretty deep. But I think we listened and we learned something. Be sure to follow their work online. Read and buy their stuff at the bookstore. Patronize them so they'll be around in the future when we need them. Remember to join me Friday uh, for our Week in Review uh, and among other with guests from seven days and elsewhere, um, you can hit me up on Twitter, email me on at uh, Vermont viewpoint at radio vermont.com. Our goal as always is to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. Remember you can stream this show live or listen later as a podcast at wdevradio.com anytime, anywhere. You can find me also at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. Our show is produced by me and made possible by Brent Curtis, Danny McGivrigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and uh, Steve Cormier and all the folks at WDEV. My thanks also to the team at KWMR Community Radio and Point Race Station, California. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Friday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.